You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to start by uh, telling you guys uh, one of my guilty pleasures. It's uh, going online and reading historical counterfactuals. And there's dead silence. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a very pretentious way of saying that uh, I like going online and reading uh, people's takes on alternate history. So uh, taking a turning point in history and then imagining what happens if it had turned the other way and then imagining what things would have looked like going into the future. So for example, one of the big ones is uh, what would have happened if the Confederacy won the American Civil War? Um, or what would have happened had Germany won World War II or World War I? How would have things looked different? But one I was reading a few years ago that really stuck in my mind was in my favorite era of history. I, I'm an amateur historian. I love the Roman Empire. And so I was reading this uh, historical counterfactual, this alternate history of what might have happened had Rome lost uh, to their arch nemesis, Carthage. So they fought these three major wars against Carthage, won each one of them, and because of that became the preeminent power uh, in the Western Mediterranean first and then eventually in the East. And so this guy was hypothesizing what it might have looked like had Carthage actually won these three wars and what the next 2,000 years of history would have looked like. And he went on for pages and pages and pages of like how would have architecture looked, how would have uh, commerce looked. Um, one thing that really stuck in my mind was when he was talking about scientific development. And his conclusion was, um, had Carthage won against Rome, that scientific development that we uh, experienced in the past 2,000 years, uh, especially in the West, um, it would have been significantly stunted if non-existent. And it was an interesting statement. And he goes and he explains why. He's like, well, it actually had nothing to do with the Roman Empire in and of itself. Rather, it was because Christianity was so key to the development of, of the scientific method and was respon primarily responsible for the scientific progress we've experienced over the past 2,000 years. And you only see, in his mind at least, you only would see Christianity spread because of the Roman Empire, because of Rhodes and because of the Pax Romana, the, the, the Roman peace that they um, instituted over the Mediterranean. You wouldn't have had that with Carthage. And it's interesting that uh, there was a lot of uh, positive feedback um, in the comments in his article, except when it came to uh, the comments about science. Most of the people commenting were like, no, no, I completely disagree. In fact, we would be significantly better than uh, we would have been had Christianity never come uh, onto the scene. And that's the air that we breathe when we talk about science and we talk about faith. The general consensus that our society has right now is that um, there has been a war between faith and science, especially Christian faith and science. This war has been going on for ages, and science has definitively won. We can, we can plant the flag in the ground. Science has won. And yet, there is still 
this aroma of Christianity, there's still these, these shadows of Christianity that are built into the scientific method, that are built into the assumptions that people make uh, about the world. And so one of the things we're going to look at tonight is that, is that um, what are some of these assumptions that, uh, that we have that are actually in their, uh, in their Genesis Christian assumptions? The framing scripture that we're going to use is uh, Romans 1.20. Uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So those of you who know this uh, Romans 1 really well, uh, Paul's actually talking about the wrath of God here. And what he's saying is that, you know what? It doesn't matter that peop, uh, if people have not actually heard of God through first uh, the nation of Israel and the Jews, and secondly through from the Christians, because God's characteristics are evident. They are evident in creation. We can see his characteristics, and so because of those characteristics, people are without excuse. For, for the evil that they do, they are without excuse. But those same characteristics, God's creativity, um, primarily, like we see that, and that points towards, as we'll see in a little bit, um, some of the foundational truths that we take that underpin what we see as science. So what does that look like today? What, do, what does the air that we breathe uh, look like today? Well, to put it uh, succinctly, it's that science uh, has the answer, and it is the answer. And it's shown uh, in a phrase that I keep hearing. It started in the pandemic, and I'm sure it was used before the pandemic, but uh, it was especially used during the pandemic that uh, we're going to follow the science or trust the science. Boris Johnson in the UK used it again and again and again. He's talking about, you know what? Um, Whatever direction we take our country, we're going to follow the science. We see uh, Joe Biden using it uh, when he was uh, debating Donald Trump before the 2020 election and then afterwards continually saying, follow the science, follow the science. Justin Trudeau said, follow the science. I I actually Googled it because I was curious how many times and he had been saying it a lot through 2020 and 2021 especially. Uh, John Horgan. Uh, used it quite a bit in his conversations about what things would look like in BC. Follow the science. Trust the science. It's interesting that when we start to parse apart uh, how people uh, were actually using that phrase and some of the phrases used around it, you almost start to see uh, religious imagery being used. Uh, Boris Johnson especially, he talked about following the science as this bright light that would lead us through the pandemic. Um, and I mean, the imagery there is of the Exodus. It's of the, the pillar of fire leading the people of Israel to the promised land. And so we see uh, more and more that people are starting to uh, blur the line between science and faith, especially if they, as they've rejected Christian faith. And we see them respond when people push back as if their faith were being attacked. 
And we see that anybody that pushes back on science's uh, seeming ability to answer uh, all questions, especially the fundamental ones, uh, is a failed hypothesis. And we're going to take a look at the scientific method later, but basically the scientific method is uh, develop a hypothesis, test it. If it fails, you reject it. And so things like faith, things like even philosophy and ethics, they, have, they are failed hypotheses, so in the same way that we have discarded some failed scientific hypotheses, we can discard these hypotheses. They're no longer relevant. Whatever is anti-scientific, uh, yeah, whatever pushes back is anti-scientific and so is clearly a failed hypothesis. So I'm going to start you guys uh, discussing in groups right now to just kind of get our heads in the game. And uh, so the question for the first two questions for discussion is, uh, have you ever had discussions with other people regarding faith and science? How did those turn out? And what do you think it looks like for Christians, and I put this in quotations, to trust the science? What does it look like for us to actually be able to follow scientific progress without giving up our faith? What does that look like? So, you know, two easy questions. Let's uh, gather it back. So, any thoughts on either of the questions? Anyone want to uh, venture an answer? Well, I was suggesting that um, what you see happening with some Christians is that they don't know how to think about science. Hmm. And so their faith is highly subjective, Yeah. what I feel. And science is out there, and maybe they agree with the science, but they have no idea how the two can go along with each other. They don't understand how any sort of connection. So it's like, I have my faith, and I also believe the science. Mm -hmm. And they just don't know how the two connect. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, one of the comments online is, um, from Ken is it's hard to know uh, even if the science is true when you can find uh, online uh, any scientific discussion from basically any side of the, uh, the argument. So how do you know uh, which one is true and which one is not? And uh, yeah, that's, that, that's uh, definitely a, a difficult position that we are in uh, now. We've never had uh, more difficulty um, trusting in in the seeming experts that expertise used to be significant, um, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, but uh, it's been steadily eroded uh, over time, which is another whole discussion. But uh, where we are right now in terms of science is that, uh, as I mentioned, that the air that we breathe, that everything but science is a failed hypothesis. So how did we get here? How did we get to this place, especially when we uh, look at some people's uh, conclusions, especially that guy with the Carthagian uh, counterfactual, that, that Christianity was necessary for the development of science. So how do we get to the point where we've uh, rejected Christianity? 
Well, we start with looking at science, and we see that science is rooted in the understandability of the world. You can't have science without making the assumption that the universe has rules and that we have the capability of understanding those rules. The scientific method basically leads us from uh, a hypothesis about the, the way the universe works, testing that hypothesis and either rejecting or failing to reject that hypothesis. And if you fail to reject it, it ends up explaining a part of how the world works. So basically we can boil down uh, the air that we breathe to question everything and change your theories to fit the facts. So if the facts lead you in a different direction, then you need to change your theory to accommodate that. But this truth, this truth that people think, you know what, we change our theories to fit our facts, that has not been a truth that has been accepted uh, throughout history. If we go back to the Roman Empire, and this is what we've been doing in our class, we've been looking at things, how things were um, in the Roman Empire because there's this uh, imagery that we are moving back to uh, a lot of the thought processes that the Romans had in our society today. And so when we look at how the Greeks and the Romans viewed things, we can boil their worldview down to, we know the rule, and so we alter the facts until they fit that rule. And so it's completely opposite um, pre-Christian, the pre-Christian era with the Romans and the Greeks, completely opposite to how we look at things today. Philosophy and reason were the fundamental way that they gained truth about the universe. Direct observation and experimentation were not particularly useful in gaining truth. The way we gain truth is to sit back and just really think about it. But it can't just be anybody really thinking about it. First of all, our reason tells us that uh, in order to actually do philosophy properly, um, you have to be Greek. You could be Roman, but at least Greek or Roman. Um, you have to be a man. And uh, you have to be in kind of the upper echelon of society. And you look at this, and you, the Greeks and the Romans would have said, well, of course this is right. We, we figured this out because Aristotle told us this. When you read uh, Aristotle's Republic, he talks about, um, sorry? Aristotle? Uh, not Aristotle, Plato, sorry. Plato's Republic, he, he talks about the upper echelon being the philosopher kings. Uh, he talks about uh, the middle group being the, the military people, and the bottom people are the artisans, the, the vast unwashed majority. But they are all still uh, Greeks. They are all still Greek men, because as David talked about in previous weeks, our reason logically leads us to understand that women are deformed men. So they clearly can't do philosophy, so we just toss them out. Barbarians are not human. So anybody who's not Greek or Roman, they don't even count. And slaves are just human tools. They're not actually human either. And so uh, our reason tells us that this is the truth of the world. And so when we look at the air that the Greeks and the Romans breathed, we see three things that uh, tied into how they viewed the universe and three areas that Christianity stepped into and pushed back on. 
The first one, uh, the first fact that they believed in, I should put fact in quotation marks, is that the fundamental structure of the universe is unknowable chaos, and that reason is our guiding light. And Heraclitus was a Greek philosopher, and he talked about this, and he said his big parable uh, was that, or proverb, was that you can only step into a river, a river once. And so you step into the river and your feet sink into the sand and the water flows by you. You step out and you step back in. Well, what's changed? Well, the sand is different. You're not stepping in the same sand that's moved down the river. And the water that you're surrounded with is not the same water. So that river is completely different. This is what reason teaches us. The water uh, or the river is completely different. And the truth that we can learn about the universe from this is that uh, nothing, in, nothing in the universe is fixed. Everything is in flux. And the only order is recognizing the disorder or the chaos in everything. And the only thing that we have that lets us get beyond this chaos is our reason, is our minds. But once again, Greek and male minds. The second fact that uh, the Greeks and the Romans uh, lived with was the idea that higher is better. And we see this in Genesis chapter 11. What was Genesis chapter 11? Anyone? Tower of Babel. And what did they try to do in the Tower of Babel? Yeah, they tried to build a uh, temple to heaven. And if Aristotle had read the Bible, and we don't know if he had, but if he had read the Old Testament, he'd read this story, he probably would have chuckled and been like, they had the right idea. They just, they never could actually build a physical structure to get there. Because the farther you uh, ascend into the heavens, the more perfect you get. And the worst place to be in the universe is Earth. It's just the worst. It's at the center, and that means it's at the bottom of everything. It's the garbage dump of the cosmos. As, you, as uh, heavenly beings ascend and they strip off things that are no longer useful, well, that all falls down to Earth, and we get stuck with it. The farther you are from Earth, the closer to perfection you are, the closer to the divine you are. And so you can see this idea in the Tower of Babel is like, well, if we just build this gigantic structure, we'll be able to ascend and become more perfect, become more like the gods. And the third fact that the Greeks and the Romans, especially the educated ones, would have, uh, would have accepted was that history is circular and the universe is eternal. So for history being circular, basically this pushed back on any kind of idea of progress. You know, because everything that is happening now has already happened in the past, stretching back to eternity, and will continue to happen again, stretching forward into eternity, nothing really new can happen. Progress can't really happen. If I make some kind of massive uh, discovery that impacts everybody around me, well, don't worry. You're going to die, and people will forget about it, and then at some point in the future, somebody else will make that discovery. They will die, and everyone will forget about it. Because basically, we're kind of on a plane here. Nothing really happens that's good. Nothing really happens that's bad. Everything just kind of evens out in the end. And it's circular. 
And because it's circular, it means that the universe is eternal. A circle doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. And so there never was a point of creation in the universe and there never will be a point of end in the universe. And so we see these uh, three things that the Greeks and the Romans believed. And then we have Christianity come onto the scene. We have the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the impact that he made on, uh, on his followers. And they start responding to these Greek positions. And they push back on uh, the fundamental structure of the universe being chaos. And they say, you know what? Our God is a God of order. We see in 1 Corinthians 14.33, uh, Paul saying that. Now, he is talking about worship services and the fact that chaos in worship services is inappropriate. But he's pinpointing uh, a characteristic of God in doing so. And he's saying that God is a God of order. He is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. And we see God create order out of chaos in Genesis uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says God, uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And in Hebrew theology, uh, water was equivalent to chaos. And so God creates out of the chaos. He makes order. He makes land. He makes light out of darkness. Our God is a God of order and not of chaos. And they also push back on the idea that reason uh, can be our guiding light. And they say, you know what? No, humanity uh, is corrupt. Humanity has been corrupted by sin. And so even our faculties of reason uh, are not perfect. As opposed to the earth being a cosmic dung heap, um, what does, uh, how does God describe every act of creation? He says it's good. And when he creates mankind, very good. And so this idea that uh, Earth is at the center of the universe because it's just the worst, uh, Christianity pushes back against that. And the idea that the universe is eternal and that history is circular, Christianity says um, it is not. It has a creator. There is a beginning. We see the beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we see the end prophesied in uh, Revelation 21. And so this biblical view, this biblical pushback on these Greek views led uh, to three convictions that were key to the development over the next uh, 1,500 to 2,000 years uh, of science. The first conviction being is that God creates. This is in his nature to create. Pastor Mark would have said he can't help himself. We can't assume anything about his creation because we are not God. If we want to know about his creation, we need to go out and observe it. So God exists before and behind the universe, and he's not constrained by his creation. Neither is he constrained by any Greek ideas of the eternalness of the universe. God chooses to create, and what and how he creates uh, determines what and how something is. So for an example, and I happen to really, really like uh, astronomy, so most of my examples are uh, um, astronomical examples. Uh, 
Um, why is there one star in our solar system? Why is there Jupiter? Why is there one moon? And fundamentally, fundamentally, at the very, very foundation of the answer, it's because God created it that way. Why are things the way they are? Because God created that way. Now, we'll get into the comprehensibility of the universe and conviction too, but um, what we have to understand is that God uh, has created things a certain way, and he has created things in a way that we can understand them. And because he's done that, we can go from this uh, fundamental answer of because God, and we can start uh, to observe things, and we can start to make conclusions about how the universe actually works. So for the three examples I gave there, why is there one star in the solar system? Well, it does seem that one star is far more stable than two stars. And you look around the Milky Way, and the most solar systems have more than one. Why do we have this giant planet Jupiter out there? Well, there's a bunch of garbage in the outer solar system, and it acts like a vacuum cleaner. Why do we have one moon instead of no moons or multiple moons? Well, having one moon, especially one as large as it is, actually uh, helps our uh, climate work the way it does with the tides and all those things. And we can understand these things because God has made the universe comprehensible. And that's the second conviction. The universe is comprehensible. There's an article, and I totally forgot to write down what the article was, but uh, the article I was reading, um, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, he talks about uh, how studying astrophysics has helped him come to some amazing conclusions about humanity and about the importance of life, and he even starts to use words like sacred, and at the very end he's like, but to be very clear, I'm still an atheist. But he marvels that the goings-on within the three-pound human brain are what enable us to figure out our place in the universe. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. They believed in somebody who made those laws. But why should this be? Why should the universe be comprehensible? Well, we basically end up with two conclusions. If we assume that the universe is comprehensible and from everything that we can see, whether you're an atheist or not, it does seem we can understand the universe. Either there is an intelligence that created it that way and created us to be able to comprehend it, or it's completely random. We just happen to luck out, or for some philosophers, we happen to be so horribly unlucky as to be able to understand the universe around us. For a lot of philosophers, ignorance is bliss. We would be much happier if we weren't able to understand anything about how the world works. And three, humans are fallible and our reason cannot be trusted. Aristotle is wrong. Reason is not the ultimate arbiter of reality. Genesis 3 talks about the intersection of divine creativity and human free will, and how Adam and Eve's disobedience affected everything, including our rational faculties. And so I like this uh, quote from Steven Pinker. He says, the signature practices of science, uh, including open debate, peer review, and double-blind methods, are designed to circumvent the sins to which scientists, being human, are vulnerable. 
As physicist Richard Feynman put it, the first principle of science is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. And so, based on these three convictions, we now have this basis uh, necessary for scientific development. And it's interesting because you ask any serious scientist today, and Christian or not, Christian or atheist, and none of them would argue the necessity of the second and third conviction. So the fact that the universe is comprehensible and the fact that we are fallible and we need to um, put up barriers against our fallibility, we need to put rules within the scientific method to protect ourselves from ourselves. They would argue about the necessity of God, but they would still say that, uh, you know, if we need to, if we have a question about creation, we need to go out and observe it. So we have this foundation, and it's a Christian foundation. How did we get from this Christian foundation to the point where we are now uh, easily stripping out God from these, uh, from these convictions? Well, and I wrote down just some, some highlights. The, the fact of the matter is that uh, scientific development uh, over the Christian era, which I put from around um, 300 to about 1800, it was not, uh, it was not smooth. Um, there, there was fits and starts. But by and large, everybody uh, who is a Christian that came uh, to this idea of, uh, of creation, came to the, uh, what we'll see in a little bit, the book of nature, to, to observe it and to learn from God about that, they came with this humility that, uh, you know what, I am observing the God of the universe. And uh, we see this in uh, Galileo's quote here, the glory and the greatness of Almighty God are marvelously, marvelously discerned in all his works. And so we see over the course of centuries how um, this idea of the comprehensibility of the world uh, and the fact that we change our theories uh, to fit the facts starts to work into uh, how we view the universe. Um, one that I didn't put on there was a guy named John Philipponus, and I loved his pushback on Aristotle. Aristotle's view of momentum was that uh, um, if you look at the planets, clearly they're moving around the Earth because somebody's pushing them, because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. And John Philipponus, who was uh, in the Byzantine Empire around uh, 500 AD, is like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I can take a rock and I can throw it, and, you know, the rock just keeps going until it hits the ground. So... You know, Aristotle, I think your ideas are stupid. And so he rejected Aristotelian views on momentum. And uh, William Ockham um, in, the, in the 12 and 1300s kind of expanded on that, that why doesn't the planets then slow down? Well, probably because there's nothing out there to slow them down there. They're in a vacuum. Galileo and Copernicus start talking about, okay, so this whole idea of the Earth being the center of the universe, that doesn't really make sense, because when we start to observe the planets, it really looks like they're rotating around the sun. And so it takes a number of, of years for this to become accepted truth. But when people start doing the math, when they start testing the facts, they realize their theories are wrong and their theories need to change, that the sun becomes the center of things. Kepler pushes back against another Aristotelian truth, the idea that planets move in circles. And he's like, well, no, they don't. They move in, in more of an elliptical. 
and uh, we, we end kind of the um, middle ages of, of science with looking at uh, Isaac Newton and we see how he discovered laws of motion and, uh, and gravitation and uh, he discovered uh, calculus and provided the basics for, for classical physics which I absolutely hated in school and I cursed him for that. But what we end up in the Middle Ages is uh, this philosophy of God revealing himself in two books. And there's a, uh, there's a, a, a drawing of this on, I don't even know what page that is, six maybe, five, six. But it's how God reveals himself. And uh, I took this from one of my regent classes. Uh, one of the professors, uh, Dennis Venema, uh, put this into our class notes. And we see this through um, medieval theology. And Glenn Scrivener talks about this. This is at the heart of the medieval faith, the figureoutability of the world that we can study the Bible to know God, and we can study the world to know his handiwork, and that studying both are important, and both studies were pursued with rigor and reverence. And so we see God revealing himself um, through, so God reveals himself, that's kind of the top of this, uh, this, this drawing. And on the left side, we have God revealing himself through special revelation, through the person of Jesus Christ and through his scripture. And on the right, we have him revealing himself through general, general revelation. So this is through creation. And we see the, the arrows between the two, that they are not in conflict. That how God reveals himself through scripture is not in conflict at all with how he reveals himself through uh, creation. The problem exists when humans get added uh, to the equation. And so we see at the bottom two boxes, the tools that we use to interpret God's revelation. And we use exegesis and hermeneutics to interpret the Bible. And we use the scientific method to interpret uh, creation, God's revelation through creation. And because we're sinful, because our reason is flawed, both uh, the, our use of exegesis and hermeneutics and our use of the scientific method inherently are flawed. And that is where we see uh, or perceive that there might be conflict between God's revelation through the Bible and God's revelation through his creation. So the Middle Ages ends. And we have this idea of God revealing himself through the book of nature and that we can understand at least some of who God is through what he has created. And we get to the Enlightenment. And we get this happy fellow named Rene Descartes. And uh, I kind of want to tell a Rene Descartes joke, but I won't. <laughs> anyway, no, I'll, I'll resist. But... Um, Rene Descartes' uh, thought process was, you know what, when I look at the universe and I ask, why are things the way they are? Um, how do I know fundamentally that I'm not being deceived? How do I know fundamentally that there isn't some evil demon that has taken over my ability to perceive the world and is deceiving me, that the world is completely different from how I understand it? Well, how do I know this? You know what? 
I have this completely unique idea that nobody has ever come up with in the history of the world. I'm going to just sit down. I'm going to think really hard about it. And I'm going to use my reason. And what I come to the conclusion of is that the only thing that I can really know for sure is that I exist. And so he has his Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And so this idea, and he still claimed, uh, called himself a Christian. He still strongly believed in, uh, in, he was a Catholic, and so he strongly believed in, in Christian faith. And yet he's like, you know what? I think this will actually help support my Christian faith is if we strip all this idea about faith away and we start with reason. And so we see a number of years later, this guy named Voltaire, and Voltaire takes this uh, rationality and secularism that Descartes almost accidentally started uh, him down a path on. And he says, okay, well, we don't really need a personal God at this point. Like, we've, we've kind of outgrown the idea with using my reason, uh, using my uh, faculties uh, that, that, that I have. I don't think we really need, um, we don't really need a personal God. So, you know, what we really have is we have a deistic view of the world, that God uh, is a clockmaker. He started the world working, and it just kind of, like a clock, it just tick, 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 and things go. And we can understand things using our reason, using scientific method about, about how the world works. We can use those same processes to determine moral truths. And David Hume, uh, a few, uh, very soon after that, asks the next logical question, well, if we've taken the personal God out of this and we only have a deistic view, do we really need God at all? Is God necessary for this whole um, process of, of the universe uh, working? Is he necessary? He didn't specifically say that God was, but the people that followed after him, and uh, one of the guys at Regent, he calls them the masters of skepticism. And Karl Marx, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud, all three of them would have said, absolutely not. God is not necessary. Marx believed that science uh, was the only way to view and transform the world, and that uh, faith is an opiate. Nietzsche looked at, at truth as a whole, and he's like, you know what? By the time, in the end, everything boils down to power, the, the will to power, and that scientific advancement was one way to advance uh, your own route to power. And Freud thought that religion was a self-created illusion that distracted us from the core truths of the universe offered to us by science. And I've just briefly skimmed the surface of, of what happened in the past 500 years of development, especially in philosophy, in regards to science. But effectively, what we end up with today is three convictions. And I uh, uh, looked at them very briefly earlier, but it's the three convic Christian convictions, but with God removed. And so the first conviction is that God doesn't exist. For some, some, some scientists that are, are, are not Christ followers, they, they might be agnostics. They're like, you know what? We don't know if God exists. We can't know if God exists. So we can fundamentally act as if he doesn't. But then there's some staunch atheists that are not. We absolutely can tell with, uh, without a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist. We still do, though, need to go out and observe the universe to learn about it. 
And we would all agree that the universe is comprehensible. We don't know why. We, we can't know why. This is beyond our capability to know why. But that's not really that big of a, big of a problem. It is comprehensible, and so we can understand how the universe works. And finally, that the scientific method is the only thing that holds our fallibility in check, our, our tendency to fool ourselves. Therefore, science is the plumb line by which everything else is judged. And we can see, especially with this third conviction, that we start to stray away from um, the lines that science actually would draw, from being able to uh, make a hypothesis and test it and then reject it, we're now making faith-based statements. The scientific method is a very useful tool for helping us understand creation. And humanity, like it's done throughout its history, has a tendency of starting to worship its tools. I mean, you look at some of the, the old um, parables about fire. Fire ended up being, it was a very useful tool. It ended up preventing people from freezing to death over the long winters. And yet, what did people end up doing? They ended up worshiping fire. There were fire gods. With science, it seems that we have a tendency to do exactly the same thing. It is an incredibly useful tool. It has explained so much of how the natural world works. When we strip God out of the equation, clearly we need to replace him with something. And so science ends up being the idol that we end up worshiping. The problem is, when we go from science has been useful uh, in explaining the material world uh, to science shows that there is only a material world. Because science has nothing to say about the spiritual world, about a world that is beyond the material world. It cannot. Trying to force it into that role is misusing the tool. I'm reminded of the proverb, a man with a hammer starts to look at everything around his house as uh, being a nail. You know, when you, when you have your tool, you want to start looking for every area that you, can, that you can to use that tool. And so what we do with science is that we start to use it improperly, and we start to use it in areas it was never meant to be used. And we turn science from a tool to a form of faith that many call scientism. And scientism is a form of materialism. The idea that the physical universe uh, is all that there is, and one of its major unanswerable questions is, why is the universe comprehensible if there is no creator? And the only answer that they can really give is, well, science clearly works. And you know what, maybe we just shouldn't think so much about why it works. No one disputes its efficacy but we can't really know why. We can't know the fundamental truths about why it actually works. So I've been talking a lot. <laughs> so we're gonna have another discussion question. So one thing that I want you guys to discuss around your tables and online is um, this idea of the comprehensibility of the universe, this idea of, I mean, we as Christians would say that they that there, it is necessary to have a creator with how we see the universe. What are some talking points you might be able to bring up in discussion with somebody who would disagree with you, who would deny that there needs to be a creator? And just as you guys are discussing, remember, 
people online when you're discussing in the chat and people at your table, people might have a different view of how things are than you. So be gracious, be kind, and uh, be winsome in your discussions. So. So we definitively figured out how to answer everybody when they, uh, when they ask us these questions. Got it licked, we're all done. All right, mic drop, I'm out of here. <laughs> Half an hour early too. <laughs> Any, anyone want to uh, share what they talked about in their tables or online? Anyone? Online, uh, Lori pointed out that, uh, C.S. Lewis mentions this as well, that the human desire for something, um, something beyond what uh, this world can satisfy, and that uh, this longing, if, if it can't be filled in this world, well, in Lewis's mind at least, it pointed clearly towards the fact that there was um, another reality that could fulfill this longing. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So what he's saying is that uh, if we encounter a car, and the complexity of a car uh, leads us to assume that it didn't just happen randomly, that there's actually a creator of the car. And we are infinitely more complex than a car. And we look at the, the way the universe works, and it's infinitely more complex than a car. So why should we assume that a car has a designer and not uh, the universe and not us? Yeah. All right. So. We are, in our society, kind of in this area of, of scientism and materialism. And there are some outcomes of, of these viewpoints, of this worldview. And the first one is that we cannot, if we kind of come at the universe from a material, materialist perspective, we cannot have um, fundamental knowledge, foundational knowledge of the world around us. Basically, we cannot know for sure that our, how we view the world is actually true. And uh, if you want a good example of this, it's the movie The Matrix. And so in The Matrix, Neo doesn't realize that he lives in a world that's basically this giant simulation. It's not until he's taken out of the simulation that he's actually able to get real knowledge of the world around him and to realize that uh, he needs to learn Kung Fu and shoot a bunch of guns at people. The second, uh, the second truth is that uh, without a creator, uh, 
the material world is all that there is. And uh, it's actually kind of a depressing thought because right now, most modern physics, physicists look at the way the universe works and there's the underlying assumption that at some point, entropy will win. So the universe will not end uh, with a bang, but with a whimper. The idea that over billions and billions and trillions of years, even the very uh, atomic structure that, that makes us up will just fall apart. And eventually the universe will be a soup of nothingness. Time will cease to exist. And, and that is all there is. So there's no ultimate purpose to the universe because it seems like entropy will win. And even uh, if entropy doesn't win, because there's, there's still no ultimate purpose, and so there's no ultimate purpose in anything that I do, any of our endeavors, if I leave this place and I somehow get myself elected uh, prime minister and I make Canada into a first-rate world power and I conquer everybody else, I'm still going to be dead in 50 years, probably less than that. <laughs> Roz is nodding in the back. <laughs> in a thousand years, probably nobody's going to remember who I was, even if I did manage to conquer most of the world. In two to three billion years, the Earth, if how we understand physics um, holds, the Earth will cease to exist because the sun will have swallowed it. Anything that we do uh, without a creator, without there being something beyond us, is ultimately purposeless. And this is one, one of Nietzsche's conclusions. Um, this is why he ends up uh, with his philosophy being called nihilism, is that in the end, everything is annihilated. Everything is meaningless in the end. Nothing that I do has any eternal consequence. And finally, when we strip out the Imago Dei, when we strip out the image of God, um, it removes anything special about us uh, as people. At best, we're higher order animals. There is no eternal part of us. We're simply sentient stardust. We are no more valuable than the 28 to $38. I heard multiple, or I read multiple estimates of how much a human body's worth online. The 28 to $38 of the chemicals in our body. The idea of the sacredness of life is a human construct. And so I go back to this Neil deGrasse Tyson article where he talks about how studying the cosmos has led him to realize that life is sacred, life is important. Well, it's just a human construct. You know, it's not nothing more important than the dust that we're made out of. The thing is, the idea that we're not important, the idea that we're not any different from the world around us, even people that are atheists, there's something in their minds that, that pushes back on that. And so even when you strip God out of the, out of science, when you strip God out of the universe, there's still something that looks at myself and I'm like, yeah, but you know, there's something about me that's special, right? The thing is, if matter is all there is, then what about us is special? Well, if it's not our bodies, because our bodies are just these meat machines that eventually break down, then what must be special about us is our minds. And once again, I uh, put Ecclesiastes 1.9 there. There's nothing new under the sun. And so we go all the way back to Greek philosophy, and we start seeing this play itself out in, in modern day.
the Greek philosophers, um, there was this view called Gnosticism. And the idea was that there was this split between the mere material world and the spiritual world. And that the material world is clearly bad. It's wrong. It's a dung heap. Everything bad from the, uh, from the perfect heavens falls its way down to earth, and we're stuck with it. Matter is bad. Our bodies are tombs. So this was a common view in uh, the, the Roman Empire. When Christianity comes onto the scene, um, there are some people that end up trying to syncretize this view with Christianity, and we get Christian, I put that in quotations, Christian Gnosticism. It's what was one of the big theological fights the early church had, was pushing back on this idea that matter is bad. They believed that uh, um, the only way that one could truly become um, um, spiritual is to focus on, uh, focus on the spirit. So it didn't matter what you did with your body. And not only that, but when they would look at Jesus, they would say, well, clearly, if God um, was coming down to earth, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take a physical body. That's insane. Matter is bad. So clearly, Jesus must have, you know, maybe he was an illusion, and it just looked like he was physical. When he ate, it just looked like he was eating something. Or maybe he was a spirit who inhabited temporarily a body, and then before the crucifixion, he evacuated that body, and that's what died. It wasn't actually Jesus. But there was all these theological uh, and heretical viewpoints that Gnosticism tried to bring to the forefront, and uh, there but by the acts of the Holy Spirit that um, Orthodox Christianity rejected all these. But Gnostic uh, theology, Gnostic heresy, uh, kept popping its head up throughout Christian history. One of the major ones was uh, during the Cathar heresy. So from the 10th to the 13th centuries in southern France, there was a group of um, ostensibly ostensible Christians, but in reality they were heretics because they basically followed the same path that the early Gnostics did, which was that the physical body is wrong, and the spirit is what's important. And the way that I purify my spirit is through extreme asceticism. And so they'd starve their, themselves, they'd beat themselves with rods in order to purify their spirit. Descartes wasn't a Gnostic per se, but he does make this dividing line between matter and spirit, between body and mind. And he set, sets uh, Western philosophy on the path of mind-body dualism quite definitively. And we see that today. And we see whenever this uh, duality between splitting our minds and our bodies apart, about making our uh, minds important and our bodies not important, we see the same problems happen again and again throughout history. We see uh, drug and alcohol abuse, because why does it matter what I put into my body? My body's not important. And in fact, there are some drugs that can expand my mind and make my mind be able to better comprehend uh, the spiritual things of the world. We see sexual promiscuity. I'm just a body. The person I want to sleep with, is that she just has a body. You know, it doesn't matter who I have sex with then. 
We see uh, extreme hedonism uh, and extreme asceticism. We don't see extreme asceticism so much today, but as I mentioned with the Cathars, that was kind of their, their watchword, it was the, how much they, were, um, they embraced asceticism. Today, I think we more go the extreme hedonism. Free reign to indulge whatever we want, because in the end, our bodies are not what makes us us, it's our minds. And we have questions about our identity. If my body doesn't matter, how do I find out who I am? And in the end, the, the, the reality is, is that if I've rejected my body as being any kind of definition of who I am, then really who I end up being is who I think I am. So I go, I retreat back to my mind. We retreat back to this uh, ancient Greek version of reason being the ultimate arbiter of reality. That who I think I am, that is who I am. And because my mind is the ultimate arbiter of reality, anybody that pushes back on me, anybody that questions the identity that I've chosen for myself, they are attacking me on a fundamental level. Philosophical equivalent of stabbing me with a knife. And finally, we see abuse of the natural world. If the world is a dung heap, we don't need to treat it with respect. And so we have, in each one of these, the pushback that we have with our, through our faith. The first one is that our bodies are important. Why? Because God showed that they were important when he became incarnate. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. It shows that he took the body that he, uh, he became incarnate, he took that seriously. So we should take our bodies seriously. When we think about uh, sexual promiscuity or drug abuse or extreme hedonism, we have to understand that we were bought with, at a price and we are not our own. When we talk about our identity, we look at Genesis 1.27. Um, so God made man in his own, own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. The image of God is what gives us our fundamental identity, not what I define myself as. And finally, we're called to be stewards of creation, and that creation is good. So the... The name of this class is uh, um, Christianity, uh, how, how Christianity saved civilization and can do so again. So what can we do as Christians to push back on this trend in society? And it might seem like an easy answer, but we need to, to live out our faith and uh, we need to understand how our faith interacts with other ideas, especially in the case of what we're looking at tonight with the idea of uh, the scientific method, of, of scientific progress. We see in 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The scientific method was developed in large part by people who had an encounter with the living God, 
and saw the characteristics that he displayed in scripture, his creativity, his desire for order, saw those characteristics played out in the universe. We've encountered that same God and we must approach him, his creation, and the people he's created with the same humility and reverence that our forebears did. And so just four things to kind of uh, wrap us up tonight. Um, we need to be aware of our faith position regarding creation, but approach those who disagree with us winsomely and with gentleness and respect. And that means we need to know what we believe and we need to be able to communicate that. We need, to yeah, we need to treat God's creation as important and realize that our dominion over it does not equate to ownership. David has mentioned this multiple times in the past that um, Christians should be among the foremost of environmentalists. We should be um, keen about treating the creation that God has put us in, uh, treating it well, using it responsibly. Uh, we need to treat ours and others' bodies as important. And that includes um, being aware of what we consume, not just food and drink, but the information that we consume. All of this affects us, and so we need to be aware of that. And finally, we need to treat people as image bearers of God and treat them with the dignity uh, that comes with that. And there's a quote uh, from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory, and he says, we must, uh, we must remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you might be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, culture, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is the mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll have some time for, uh, for questions. Lord, um, we just ask that you would help us to treat um, people with the dignity that they have being image bearers of you. Help us to go from this place. And everyone, when we interact with God, whether uh, we agree with their positions or not, that we would realize how much you love them and how much um, you want to know them and be known by them, God. We pray that you would give us wisdom, that you'd help us to be winsome when talking to people about these deep things. Um, when we talk about uh, the, the Christian foundation of, of science and the scientific method, that you give us the words to say, God, and that uh, through the conversations that we have, people would come to know you through us, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. 
If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.